Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 233, Closing In. Last time, the Allied forces, mostly in the form of South or East African troops, closed in on the Vichy capital, Tananarive. Not that it had been easy for the King's African rifles, but it was doubly hard for the South Africans pushing their way south from Diego Suarez. This unit was called Getcol, and it was made up of a battalion of the 1st City Regiment, a battery of artillery, most of a company of engineers with tractors and workshops in tow, led by eight armored cars of the Pretoria Highlanders, and in front of them, a motorcycle patrol. As they traveled south, the South Africans expected trouble from the French. Whether they knew it or not, all French officials, military and civilian, were ordered to trip up the enemy forces by any and every means available to them. One such unit was Commandant Lanau's detachment. Still, it wasn't a large force, nor was it highly motivated by this point. No, what would cause Getcole the most frustration was the geography. Again, the South Africans departed Sakarami near the Arachart airfield and made for Miromandia, about 230 miles or 370 kilometers to the south. And the first 80 miles were relatively easy and uneventful, and that had been covered on the first day. But the good times were over. From now on, they would only cover some 15 miles a day, due to the French following orders. As Kenneth Gandar Dower put it, the rest of the trip was 150 miles of burnt bridges, collapsing culverts, and clouds of mosquitoes. Oh yeah, not all of their enemies had guns. It's worth stopping for a moment to say a bit about the explorer, author, and aviator Gandar Dower. In school, including university, Gandar Dower was a successful athlete. Apparently, if a ball or stick was involved... He was naturally good at it. This included playing at Wimbledon and the French Championships, and then he became a pilot, because why not? In the mid-1930s, he spent time in Africa searching for the Marozzi, a spotted lion that was rumored to exist. And like a young Churchill, Gandalf Dower wrote about his adventures, putting out several books. So it was no long stretch that when the war came, he became a war correspondent writing of battles in Abyssinia and Madagascar, most of the time riding a bike or paddling a canoe. And it was Gandalf Dower's luck to be with the South Africans at this moment. Though it was a hell of a way to travel, he had seen worse. Going back to the mosquitoes, it was these and their biting that drove the men crazy. As Getcole's commander, Lieutenant Colonel Getcliffe, wrote, All men have been bitten badly, especially those working at night. The insects are dreadful. As the unit went on, they lost trucks to bad roads, almost non-existent roads, and bridges that were more wishes than reality. And having these men walk or ride on them did not improve the situation. After a five-ton and then two three-ton trucks were lost, one actually just fell through the bridge, The vehicles were emptied, and the men carried on, literally carrying what had been in the now-lost trucks. The men lost count of the number of rivers they had crossed in the first few days. But the real test, or rather the first real test, was when Getcole neared Ambozoana, 
south southeast of Mahunga. There, the French line was set up, and it had a commanding view of the approaching road. Even better, after crossing the river, there was a sharp seven-foot rise, and this went on for a ways in both directions. What could have been a bloody stalemate was worked around by literally having a smaller force get in boats and go around the defensive position to land in the French rear. The Malagasy troops saw this and fled. The French officer leading them could do little by himself, so he followed his men. After this happened, someone had the idea to use another, though smaller, unit of South African troops, dubbed Seacole, really a detached company of the 1st City Regiment. They were to swing wide and hopefully cut off any retreating French forces so that they did not have to fight them again later. Also, if Seacole could cut the enemy's communication lines, then the capital would know even less of what was coming at them. It was a good plan, but panic gives feet wings, and the French were able to pull out and back up faster than the Allied troops coming at them thought possible. So a third force was put together and landed even further south along the west coast. But it turned out to be not needed. Not because the French had pulled back again. No, this time they had decided to stand and fight. About 100 miles or 160 kilometers south of Diego Suarez Bay along the west coast sits the farming town of Moramandia, certainly less than halfway to the capital, but the center of the island was avoided for military and logistical reasons. But now it seems the Vichy forces had decided the enemy would get no further. Just before the town of Maromandia sits Jojohaley, a town settled within wooded hills. However, the French had cut fire lanes within those hills, and they felled trees to block the road. Hence, as the South Africans cleared the roads, they would be shot at by the French from behind their defensive positions. Further, there were anti-tank traps just before the French line. Thus, the armored cars were also neutralized. Of course, it was the motorcycle patrol leading the way that came upon the defense works first. This was during the evening of September 13th. The infantry did not arrive for another 24 hours. And now that the fighting men were there, scouts were sent out to make sense of the French positions. But each time a patrol went out, they were met with machine gun fire and grenades. This told Lieutenant Colonel Getcliffe two things— The Vichy troops were ready for them, and apparently they were going to genuinely contest this ground. Which made Getcliffe's next decision rather easy. Though it was dusk of September 14th, not all his infantry had come up yet, so between that and the French being ready, he decided to wait on the morrow. Still, there was always hope, so the political officer with Getcliffe drove up to the French line, white flag flying, of course, and demanded that the French surrender. But the answer made everything clear, as the French commander said, Sorry, our last instructions from Tenerife were to fight to the last man. That night, an officer of the South African engineers decided to help his side out by trying to gather more intelligence about what they would be facing the next day. So, He took off his boots and helmet, which makes sense because they make noise, but he also left his rifle behind. But he knew what he was doing. That metal item also made noise. 
But as Captain Boyle of the 1st City Regiment later reported, 10 minutes later, there was a terrible explosion. No trace was ever found of him again. Well, at least the South Africans knew that the French had mines defending their position, and not just along the road. Better to find out by losing one man versus your entire attacking formation. Such is war. At 11 a.m. the next day, September 15th, Getcliffe's artillery finally caught up to him, and right away he ordered it deployed and to start a bombardment. Hopefully, this would be enough to get the French to surrender, as Getcliffe knew his men would not only have to rush forward at a fixed position that was well dug in, but the men would have to cut their way through the jungle, all the while being fired upon. No, that was a recipe for disaster. Hopefully, the artillery would get the job done. And now that the Allied guns were firing, the armored car squadron raced forward towards the first roadblock of downed trees. With the French keeping their heads down, the trees were starting to be pushed to the side, that is, until a French machine gun opened up. The now semi-cleared road was left behind, and the cars retreated. Getcliffe let a few hours of bombardment go by, hoping to see a white flag. He did not. So with a heavy heart, at 1.15 p.m., he ordered the infantry to prepare to attack. But just as the men were about to be launched at the French wall, a white flag did appear over it. But if Getcliffe thought it was over, he was wrong. Yes, the French came out to talk of terms of surrender, but Getcliffe decided to go for all of it. He told the French he would only accept their surrender if it also included the surrender of all French forces as far as Maromandia, which was even further south. Otherwise, he would continue firing. The now highly motivated French troops got on their phone and made some calls. What they said must have worked, as the troops in question and those at Alkamami, close to the coast, also agreed to surrender. This allowed Getcole to enter Maromandia on September 18th. And now, Getcliffe had an additional 23 European, 23 Creoles, and 89 Malagasy POWs. He would have had more, but about 200 of the Malagasy troops vanished into the bush. Getcole was only a fourth of the way there, but Getcliffe was doing all he could to avoid bloodshed on either side. Ironically, or not, the third Allied contingent sent out on a boat to land behind the enemy lines, had just landed on September 15th. Of course, they did not know of the recent surrender, so landed and walked for 24 and a half miles through the thick jungle. The men were equally parts relieved and angered when they found out that their trek had been for nothing. More good news, though, Myromandia was as far as Getcliffe had been ordered to go. He sent out scout parties to the south but he had achieved his objective. That part of the West Coast was cleared of enemy troops, and Governor Annette had that many fewer troops to command. Getcliffe's push south was balanced out by Volkol along the East Coast. But first, they had to cross over the island from the West Coast, starting at Beramanja, at the bottom of the large bay just below Courier Bay. 
From here, Volkhol, consisting of one platoon with a mortar detachment and six armored cars of the Pretoria Regiment with C subsection of an engineers, moved out. Starting out during the night of September 9th, they headed due east to make for Vohimar along that coast. This trek across the island was about 90 miles long, and they had started out about 90 miles south of Diego Suarez Bay. The finding men may have been concerned about what they would run up against, but it was the engineers who were constantly busy. During their trip, they crossed five major rivers and numerous smaller ones. Their track lane and then using their portable girder bridge kept them busy and kept them tired. Still, progress was made. Amazingly, it only took two days to cross this area of some 90 miles or 144 kilometers. But once they reached Voimar, the Vichy military commander of the area was not willing to accept surrender or even the authority of the South Africans, which is when they showed him their authority by shoving a rifle into his gut. The chief of the region was arrested. The South Africans took the next five days to secure the area and rest, then got back to it, but this time heading south. But if the engineers thought that the trek east was tough, they now ran into a river almost every mile that required their attention. It got to the point where some of the infantry had to help, which worried the commander, having that many fewer men ready with their weapons. Yet, needs must. It went this way for the next 130 miles, or 209 kilometers. And just before reaching their goal of Antahala, there was one more river to cross. This one was conquered with a pontoon bridge. The town of Antahala was entered on September 24th. If something didn't change, the French would find themselves more than trapped. They would be surrounded. Having said that, as Antilaha is just north of the Bay of Antigil, this Allied unit was still quite far away from the capital. But, it has to be said, with each day that went by, the French were losing more and more control over their island. Now that both coastlines closest to Diego Suarez Bay were firmly under Allied control, the main thrust of taking the island's capital could commence. Back on September 13th, Brigadier F.W. Festing's 29th Independent Brigade Group had left Mahunga for the start of Operation Jane, the final approach to the capital. The 29th was escorted by a strong naval force, led by Admiral Tennant. The idea was to take advantage of the fact that Tamatave, modern-day Toa Masina on the east coast, was only about 110 miles northeast of the capital at the time, Tamatarif. The idea was, if the troops could land near that town, they could take advantage of the fact that the rail line went from the coast city to the capital, and it was obviously much shorter than marching from Mahunga. And as Tenet had three cruisers, the carrier Illustrious and the battleship Warspite, with accompanying destroyers and minesweepers, it was doubted that the French or even the Japanese would interfere. Originally, the idea had been to land near Tamatave and then rush into the port city, but as Mahunga had fallen relatively easy, 
Perhaps it would be best to just head straight for Tamatave Harbor, show the enemy what they were about to contend with, and then offer them a chance to surrender. To help persuade the enemy to nod their head in a collective yes, ten swordfish would be flying over when the offer was made. At 5.40 a.m. on September 18th, the convoy sailed into Tamatave Harbor, and the cruiser Birmingham radioed the chief of the region. However, the chief only came on to say he would not negotiate, and surrender without the permission of Governor Annette was impossible. But Tennant knew he was in a strong position and needed this over with very little bloodshed. Well, allied bloodshed. So he told the chief that, regardless, my representatives were rowing ashore under a white flag to discuss a British takeover of the port, and if they are fired upon, the British warships would reply in kind. The boat carrying the envoy left the main ship at 7.35 a.m. When it was about 400 yards from shore, tracer bullets splashed near the small craft. The captain of the small vessel had her turned around, and Admiral Tennant waited a few more minutes to make sure the envoy's boat was safe before he ordered the guns to be opened up. And he did it in his own particular way by simply saying, Here we go. The signal to fire was run up the Birmingham, and the other ships replied in kind while firing. To be sure, as the British needed this area intact, only secondary guns were used. But between the sound and the fury, signifying immediate death, just three minutes later, a white flag did go up on shore. It was 7.55 a.m. The 29th Brigade went ashore, but their day was just getting started or for at least 80 of them, though the majority of them would stay, for now, and defend the Allies' latest possession, 80 of them would move on with their artillery and machine guns and Brigadier Festing, who came ashore at 10 a.m. The idea was to time it so that this force would approach the capital from one direction, while the East Africans approached from another. So far, Things had gone mostly well for the Allied forces, but Governor General Annette, thinking about his future, was more than willing to follow his orders from Vichy. He would resist to the end and make sure that all under him would do the same. And as the Allies only truly controlled a small section of the island still, the Battle of Madagascar had a ways to go. (laughs) 